Well, not, not that long ago, I got in a, the kind of debate that only pastors get into uh, with a friend, another pastor, and it was, what, what is, who is the most influential figure uh, within the Christian world, so the most influential Christian figure in the 20th century? Um, and it went on far too long. We, you know, we got into that sort of thing. And I, as I've reflected on that, and I like to, um, I can't, I don't know who the most influential was. I'm not including popes here because they have a sort of pre-existing sphere of influence, right? But I've boiled it down to three. I think there were, there were probably three in the 20th century that I feel safe saying were really, really influential. And the first was one you might guess, Billy Graham. You can say what you will about his tactics or his theological predispositions, but the man was, simply put, it is a bald fact, enormously influential, Right? He, uh, not just in North America, all across the globe, he converted thousands upon thousands of people to Christianity in such a way that you, you can't really ignore it. You kind of have to, well, good on you, man. You, you, you did well, you know. So Billy Graham is an, an interesting aside, I'll just add. He also, isn't it fascinating, he's one of the few really famous pastors who doesn't have any serious allegations against his moral reputation. I think that's pretty remarkable. Now, second on that list would be C.S. Lewis, another name you'd probably say, yeah, that, that makes sense to me. Lewis was, of course, a, a famous professor and an author. His influence was primarily in the English-speaking world, um, but I, I have to admit, in the English-speaking world, of which I am deeply a part, I don't know many pastors or priests who were not influenced by him. I, I can't think of one, in fact. He, he has been that influential. And then the third figure is one you may not know, but who nonetheless was uh, extravagantly influential. His name was Watchman Nee. He was a Chinese pastor, mid-20th century, early to mid. He was also an author, and he basically started and sustained some of the most uh, resilient and robust Christian uh, communities in Asia. Um, he was at the very beginning of church growth in China, which is really important because, as you may know, um, they say in our century, not the 20th, the 21st century, probably the most uh, prominent place of Christian growth will be in Asia. Most Christians will not look like us in the 21st century. Uh, they will be from the East. So what's my, my point here? I'm not just trying to give you my list of interesting people. My point is there, is, there is one thing, actually there are many things that these uh, men held in common, but one of them was a, a sort of, serious and sacrificial commitment to generosity. They were all very, very serious and open about their commitments to give. So Billy Graham, he was crystal clear throughout his whole career uh, about where his wealth went. You know, at his big rallies, he would, people, there would always be a love donation. He was very, very clear about where all of that went. He lived off a very small fraction of what he made in his crusades, and uh, the rest went to charities um, and to foundations. C.S. Lewis, uh, you may know this, but he was surprisingly never financially successful in his life. He, pr he pretty much died a very middle-class man. And in fact, through a lot of his life, he struggled financially. His brother lived with him in the same house for a large part of his life. And yet after converting to Christianity for the huge bulk of his professional life, he gave away 60% of his income. 60%, can you imagine that? 
not a wealthy man at all. Nobody knew about it. They found out about it afterward. He had been giving away 60% of his income for the bulk of his Christian life. <laughs> it's amazing. And then finally, Watchman Nee. Apparently early on in his career, he had established a commitment to live off a third of what he had made. Then he would spend another third of what he made in publishing books, which was a huge part of his ministry. And then finally, the last third he simply gave away. He would just give it away. At the end of his life, he was eventually, um, communist China was not excited about his great influence, as you can imagine. And so he was put into a Chinese labor camp, and uh, there, of course, he lost all of his personal possessions. And so ultimately, everything he owned was given away, all of it. It's amazing. But you see, what's important here, what I want you to see is not that these people hated money, which they didn't. It's not that they didn't care about things, they did. They even cared quite a bit about entrepreneurship and financial planning and clarity. They knew that money was actually a very, very important part of their ministries. But what they knew, above all things, was that they could never save or accumulate enough that it couldn't be taken away from them. And that's true. You can never save enough that it cannot be taken away from you. And what this meant for them was that their possessions had a kind of usefulness that had nothing to do with them at all. And so they felt very free to simply give it all away, to just give it away. And as they realized this, I believe that they tapped into something that is uh, absolutely one of the greatest parts of the Christian faith, one of the greatest resources in the Christian faith, and it is this, the super abundant generosity of God. God is triune, friends. He can give and give and give because he has been giving to himself in his own triune relationship from all eternity forever and ever, and he does it with us. We were created, in fact, out of a super abundant generosity of his own love. He did not need to create you or me or any of us. He doesn't require us to do anything for him. He does it simply because he loves to. Because he loves to. So I want to talk a little bit about this today. What it means to trust in God's super abundant generosity. What it means to not trust in the accumulation of wealth. And uh, I hope that it will be useful for you. But our gospel reading today actually makes the most robust claim about this sort of innate liquidity of wealth. I think it's really interesting. Jesus in our gospel reading, as you, we just read, was confronted by a man who was deeply concerned about receiving some share of his brother's inheritance. You remember that. Which, by the way, as you may know, uh, he was probably not legally entitled to. Because uh, in that day, all of the wealth uh, that was given through, uh, that went through, down through inheritance, sorry, that was the word, inheritance, but inheritance was given to the oldest son, not to everyone else. It was given to the oldest son, and that son was then entitled to decide how that wealth might or might not be distributed amidst remaining family members. And so this man reaches out to Jesus. And again, I think he's probably not the oldest because why would he be reaching out to Jesus if he had a legal right to all of the wealth? And so he says, Jesus, get my brother to share some of the wealth that he'll inherit, inherit from our father with me. And I think it's important to see that 
one can imagine Jesus might, you could see that Jesus might actually side with this brother, can't you? One could almost hear him saying, yes, you, you, you should receive some portion of your father's wealth. Sharing is good. Generosity is good. I will gladly step in and tell your brother that sharing is the right thing to do. But that's not what he does, does he? He says, first, I am not an arbiter in your case. This is up to you. This is about you and your brother and your family. It's not about me. So you need to figure this out on your own. The issue is yours. But, and then he adds this, and this is the crucial part. He adds as a word of warning. He says, be very, very careful. Be careful because if you receive a lot of that goodness, if, if what you want comes to pass, you could be in grave danger. So be on guard because all of the possessions that you could inherit, they could actually possess you, which is interesting. Now, I, I think that this is just a fascinating interaction because here is this underdog, a have-not, looking for some of the resources, some place of security that would reasonably be his, especially coming from our cultural perspective. And Jesus, rather than taking a side, simply says, be careful, watch out. And then as a way of, of, of fully sort of exploring this topic, he gives us a parable, which I think will bring this into a sort of crystalline clarity. He tells this parable about a man who does very, very well in his life. So well that he can't even find a place to store all of his goods. And so he says, you know what, I'm going to tear down my current barn. I can't hold all of my stuff. I'm going to build a bigger barn to store everything. And he does so well that he eventually says, I don't have to worry about anything. There, there is, there's nothing in this world that could ever touch, that could tap into my wealth and remove all of it, and so I can take it easy. I can have the rest of my life to do whatever it is I want. I can basically just chill. But then, in the parable, God shows up, and he says, these are strong words, he says, you fool, you fool. Tonight is the night that your soul is required of you. Tonight is the night that your time on earth is over. And your possessions, by the way, they are no longer yours. <laughs> and then comes the crucial conclusion to the whole interaction. He says, this is what happens to people who accumulate treasure for themselves and are not rich toward or in God. Not rich in God. And so the parable ends, it just stops right there, and we're left to wonder, we sort of have this lingering question in our minds, I certainly do, and it is, what did that man in the parable actually get wrong? What did he do wrong? And then second, what does that have to do with this brother who wants the inheritance from his brother? We'll see. First off, I, I have to say, I don't think that the man in this parable has done anything wrong to receive all of his good fortune, by the way. So I don't think that that is an option on the table. It says, in fact, in the text that the land produced his wealth. You read that? The land produced his wealth. So it seems to suggest he didn't really have much to do with, the, with his own sort of financial gain in the first place. It was just a sheer act of graciousness on God's behalf. And then second, and I'm not certain about this one. This is just conjecture on my end. I'm not so sure that he even did wrong in building a second barn. You know, the bigger one. 
I think in some ways, maybe you can use blessings like that to give even more. Maybe he could have stored up even more grain and given away more. It could last longer. You could think of a circumstance in which a bigger barn might bless other people. Some of you actually have barns, and you probably do use them to bless people. Thank you. But what he does do wrong, what he does do wrong, is he believes that by storing and controlling all of that wealth, that he can manufacture his own security. He thinks that he can control his own end. He thinks that he can secure a sort of lasting comfort in a world that is fundamentally broken. He thinks he's achieved his own rest. But of course he didn't, and he can't. And you and I innately understand this as well. See, think about it this way. In the parable, God asks him right before he dies, you remember this part, he says, who will your stuff belong to when you're gone? It's a really good question. And what's interesting here is you can almost imagine the younger brother is listening to this parable and you can sort of see what he might be thinking. Maybe he even feels like, that is my point exactly. You see, I want to receive my father's wealth because when he dies, he can't take it with him. So it might as well go to me. It's got to go to somewhere. But the problem here is twofold. First, and you know this, after you are dead, you cannot control your wealth entirely. Think about it. In your will, you can designate that your wealth will go here and here and here. But then once it gets there, who's in control of it? Not you. You can't control it. That's the point. And then the second problem, which I think is more serious, whoever gets that wealth, whoever that wealth belongs to after you are gone, they can't hold on to it either, can they? Because eventually it will just go like a stream of water through their fingers. You can't hold on to it. They can't hold on to it. Not your daughters or your sons or your nieces or your nephews or your godchildren. Nobody can hold on to it. You see, wealth will not remain in the same place. It never does. Wealth, in other words, is always only ever liquid. <laughs> and I mean that even in a tangible sense. It only passes through our hands. Because you see, not, not only does death prove that wealth can't control your security and you can't control your wealth, but this parable shows us that we will actually be restless, like this younger brother or this man who thought he could secure his own well-being until you find your rest in God. That is the great quote by St. Augustine. Our hearts are, in fact, restless until we find our rest in God Almighty. And so I simply ask us this morning, what is the answer? What will actually help us become rich in or toward God? What could that look like? What does that mean? And I have to admit, I'm still figuring much of that out for myself. I don't, I, I'd love to hear your take. But I'll tell you that one thing it certainly means is that if you or I are ever to be the kind of generous people that Jesus clearly wants this younger brother to be, we not only have to see the way our efforts to be secure do not work, which is what this parable is about, but we must also see how deeply generous God is to us. We have to see how generous God is to us. 
And that's exactly what our Old Testament reading is about. Our Old Testament reading today is from Hosea. I'll go quickly, don't worry. Hosea, in this passage, is this remarkable poem about the gratuitous grace and love of God. It's written from God's perspective, as you may have noticed. And it goes like this. Listen, I'm going to summarize a little bit. God says, when, I, when Israel was a child, I loved him. I rescued him out of slavery in Egypt. I taught him to walk. I healed him when he didn't even know it. I led them, he switches the plural, I led them with cords of kindness and bands of love. I was to them like a mother who lifts an infant up into the air and presses their face into her cheeks out of sheer delight in them. What an image. I bent down and I fed them. When they were bent and turned from, the, from me, and even said, he doesn't care about us. God no longer cares about us. Even still, this is what he says, my compassion grows. My compassion grows. Now, I don't know about you, but when my kids don't listen to me, that's not what happens. <laughs> I tend to get frustrated. There tend to be limits to my patience and to my compassion. But what he says here, what he says about God the Father is that God's compassion grows even in our disobedience. Even when we do exactly what God tells us not to do, we seek our security and all sorts of other things that are not him in retaining wealth or gathering experiences or seeking comfort or whatever it is to you, and we functionally say, I do not need you, God. It says his compassion grows warm. That is, wherever we run, wherever we turn, his compassion accommodates. It has this flexibility. It has this sort of ongoing dynamic capability. It will always accommodate to whatever scenario you're in. For instance, when Israel was in Babylon or Egypt or at war or in a famine, he says, I want to give them more. I love them even more. <laughs> and don't you see, that is just what happens to us. That is just what we see on the cross of Jesus Christ. Our disobedience climaxes to a degree that you could never imagine. We kill you. Not only do we say, God, we don't need you, but we hate you. And God says to you, I will give everything to have you with me. His compassion grows. It accommodates. It is dynamic. However far you go, it will go farther. Whatever situation you find yourself in of disobedience or wayward lust or whatever it might be, his compassion says, I will go there. I will find you. It will always only ever grow to meet you wherever you might be. And that's the beauty of the generosity of God. That is the resource that you and I need in order to be compassionate, generous, and giving people. It's not just seeing that we can never hold on to, the, to our wealth. Of course we can't. It's seeing that we always have exactly what we need. In closing, I, I can't help but return back to our friend Watchman Nee, the Chinese pastor. Nee, as I mentioned, at the end of his life, well, not really at the end, actually, sort of in the middle of his life, was detained in a Chinese labor camp and he, in fact, spent the last 20 years of his life in that uh, concentration camp. And at the end of his life, he died alone, completely alone. They did not even tell his family that he was sick. 
Uh, in fact, it was a grandniece who eventually got contacted and said, uh, your great uncle is dead, you can come get his ashes. And when she came to that labor camp, she picked up all of his stuff, you know, a pillow, some scraps. Underneath his pillow, she found a small piece of paper, and it said this, Christ is the Son of God who died for the redemption of sinners and resurrected after three days. This is the greatest truth in the universe. I die because of my belief in Christ. Watchman me. And I think what's remarkable about this is simply that Nee died with absolutely nothing. The man didn't own a thing, nothing in his name. And yet he was so confident at the very end that he had the only thing that he could never need. And friends, I realize you and I were probably not going to die in a Chinese labor camp. However, I will tell you this, you can have the kind of security that will sustain you for 20 years in a Chinese labor camp. That kind of security is on offer to each and every one of us, and it is that accommodating, warm love of Jesus Christ, which he extends to all who would receive. And so I just invite all of you this morning, please receive the warmth of God's growing compassion wherever you might be. And when you do that and you see his profound generosity over you, wouldn't you want to give and give and give and give because you have received and received and received? Everything that you could ever need is found in God, given in Christ our Savior. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.